The scripture for today comes from Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word to us. There it is. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. You've already heard from a couple of the pastors here at Frontline. Uh, Brandon High gave announcements, and with Brandon was Brandon's mustache, who is just a whole nother leader in the church. If there's a tie in the eldership and a vote, the mustache breaks the vote. It carries authority carries honor and influence, and I'm just all for it, man. Um, So (laughs) we're off to a good start. I want to pray for you. Uh, You pray for me. We're going to pray together as we dive into this text. So Father, I thank you for my friends. Uh, We thank you for just the joy of being together, and we pray um, that our hearts would know the truth of what we've already sung today. That, that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You are our anchor, Jesus. You never let us down. May we be rooted in you, Christ Jesus, as we look at your word. And may, Spirit of God, you help us see the truth of, of who God is and the good news of what that means for us. We pray this together in Jesus, your name, we say, amen. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
You might be being taken back to senior English right now, right? This is a poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Invictus is Latin for the word unconquered. And I remember probably hearing it in high school for the first time in Mr. Huff's senior English lit class. Yes, some of you OCS folks know who I'm referring to. He's a living legend. It was reintroduced in my life in a movie that came out in 2009 by the same name about Nelson Mandela. And the poem, in reality, was, was something that Mandela would quote to himself in dark days in prison when he was suffering under apartheid. It's a poem that's inspired millions, and even now as I read it, it moves something, stirs something in me, because upon first reading, it seems to communicate something about like courageous resolve in the face of, of hardship standing strong, and that appeals to us, right? It reminds us maybe even of heroes of the faith. We think of Moses before Pharaoh. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the face of a furnace before Nebuchadnezzar. We think of David before Goliath. We think of Esther before Xerxes. We think of Jesus himself standing before Pilate, right? And we think of courageous resolve, and it it seems to give us courage, inspire us. But really, like a closer reading of the poem reveals that it isn't about courageous resolve like we might think See, Henley wrote Invictus when he was 27 years old. And his, his life was filled with hardship, but already at 27, he had experienced suffering and hardship. He battled tuberculosis of the bone. It's a sickness that would eventually lead to the loss of a leg and, and taking his life at age 53. But in the midst of his suffering, one thing that Henley held on to was a an avowed atheism, was certain that God didn't exist and believed fully that the only place he could ever look to for strength was himself. That all the pain that he faced had no meaning, had no purpose. You see it here in this poem, his life was just the bludgeoning of chance. And so he wrote this poem, Invictus, as really like an act of defiance to the world. And if God did exist, which is implied in this last stanza, in defiance to God too, it reads like great poetry, but in reality, it's a deadly message ultimately. I learned this week that Nelson Mandela wasn't the only prisoner who found this poem comforting. Timothy McVeigh, when he received his lethal injection for murdering 167 children and women and men in our city, he recited this poem to himself as he died. And I, I think he probably understood something deeper than Mandela understood about the meaning of the poem. John Bloom, a Christian writer, he wrote this about Invictus. He said, the poem is more like a metaphysical temper tantrum. No one's going to be the boss of me. Invictus is at its heart a deluded claim of self-sovereignty. It might ring of heroism, but it's a counterfeit. See, what the poem ultimately is about, it's an anthem of autonomy. 
It's a message that says, I don't need anyone, especially God. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So we're taking a break from Mark this morning, and we're going to look at something that's actually a pretty profound and constant theme in Mark. See, something the pastors of Frontline have been discussing and, and, and really um, experiencing, and I think you've probably been experiencing it too, over, let's say, the last five years especially, and we've been really talking about it for the last year, is that at an increasing rate, it seems more than ever, people are walking away from Jesus, And as I've been a part of this church, as a leader of this church since 2008, that's always been a part of the pain of being in the local church is you see people walk away from Christianity or walk away from solid doctrine and biblical truth. But it seems ever increasingly that that's happening more often and it's happening quicker than it's ever happened before. My mind and my heart goes to Romans 12, verse 2, where Paul writes, Hey, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul's saying, hey, there's this danger to every Christian that if we're not actively seeking to be transformed in the image of Christ, there's a real threat that we will be conformed, that we will be deformed by the image to, into the image of the world. And I think what I've witnessed in, in a really increasing way Is that happening in the lives of people that have followed Christ for a season, but they're experiencing spiritual deformation, not spiritual formation? And that's happening in the church in the West as a whole, but even in our own church frontline, even here in our Edmund congregation. And so over this past year, as the pastors of the church have been studying and thinking and reading and praying, we've been trying to name some of the core influences, the, the core forces that are, that are working to deform people spiritually, working to pull them away from sound foundational doctrinal truth, pulling them away from following Jesus. We've been asking ourselves, hey, what are the influences leading so many people away from Christ? And I think we've been able to name several of these, actually five of these. And what we'd like to do over these next two years is just over the course of two years, take some blocks of time within the life of our church and look at God's beautiful vision for formation. The, the ways that these things in culture and these influences pull us away from Christ, let the word of God speak directly to those things and tell a better story. And one of the first things that we're going to look at, the first thing we are going to look at, one of these forces that pulls us away from Jesus, one of these deforming forces spiritually, is the autonomous self. What William Ernest Henley writes and celebrates of an invictus. A heart that says, my life is built on self-dependence, self-rule, no one Especially God has the right to tell me anything about my life. I'm the captain of my soul, right? So real practically, beginning in March, we're going to equip you in community groups to to learn about the beauty and the safety of God's authority. 
We're going to look together in our groups at questions like, what does it mean for the authority of God to be good for us? In a culture where we're increasingly told that the highest form and the best form of authority is our own self, our own interest, our own opinions, what does it look like to understand and really believe when God says yes, it's a yes to life, and when God says no, it's a no to death? So today we're going to prepare our hearts to move towards that study we're going to be doing in groups in March. But to begin, I think it's going to be helpful for us to go to the beginning and look at God's authority at the beginning. So we're going to be looking at Genesis today, chapters 1, 2, and 3, really digging in in chapter 3. And so as we go through those three books, we're going to have three points. The first point is this, God's authority. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. Those first four words of the Bible, we see the fact that God has authority by the very nature of his being. In the beginning, God. Before we move on, full stop. He precedes creation. God is outside of creation. He exists before all things. In those first four words of Scripture, we get a glimpse of the light of the authority of God. There's, there's a glimpse there of deep theological truths. God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. All of that we can get a glimpse of in the very first four words of Scripture. In short, there's no power above God. He's, by his very nature, ultimate, before all things, above all things. But as we continue to read in the very first line of Scripture, we see that God has ultimate authority by the nature of his actions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That he's creator, not creation. He's initiator. He's not reacting to anything. He's the author. He's not a character. He's the potter. He's not the clay. Which tells us something about us, right? That we're creator. Shun, we're not creator. We're characters. We're not author. We're, we're the clay. We're not the potter. So the first line of scripture tells us some deep, rich, important things about the authority of God. He's before all things. He's above all things. But that begs the question, well, what kind of God is God? What is he like in the midst of this ultimate authority? Is he lonely? And he's making creation because he, he needs something from it. Is he angry and he needs something to project his frustrations upon? Is he bored and is he just experimenting to see how this is all going to play out? What does God's authority tell us about his character? Well, the good news we see as the creation narrative begins to unfold is that the creation story is saturated with the goodness of God. We see that he's a benevolent God, that he's kind, he's compassionate, he's giving. There's these two refrains that you see in the very first chapter of the Bible. And the first refrain is this. Again and again, as you read Genesis chapter 1, you'll hear, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. See, unlike other creation narratives that were floating around the ancient world at the time, God didn't create out of his authority, out of some violent act or war or bloodshed or vindictiveness. God is creating out of the overflow of his goodness. 
The creation story is a story of a good God creating good things. And there's this other refrain that's happening throughout Genesis 1. In addition to, and it was good, and it is good, is the refrain, I have given, I have given, I have given. If we begin reading Genesis 1 and read Genesis chapter 2, that would be good homework for us this week. Just read those two chapters with the eye and the lens of looking out towards and for the generosity and the giving heart of God. We see in those chapters that God gives us his image as humans. He gives us his breath of life. He gives us his blessing. He gives Adam and Eve, our first parents, delegated authority, dominion over the earth. He gives them one another. He gives them community. He gives them a mission and a purpose. Before anything fell, he gives them work and a job to do. He gives them the good gifts of creation beauty and pleasure and joy, and ultimately he gives them himself. God gives his very presence. See, what we see in creation is that God in his authority and his goodness, he creates for humanity a world full of yeses and blessings, and only one no is in the entirety of the first two chapters of Genesis, and that no is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it represents humanity's decision and option to live a life of defiance against God's authority. God had given a million yeses, and he says, hey, under my authority, I'm telling you there's one thing that's off limits. Don't eat of that tree, as Molly read, because eating of it will bring you death. It's going to be rebellion against my authority. So in other words, God's only no was a no to death. And God's authority has always meant for us safety and beauty and life and joy and flourishing. So when we think about the authority of God, we do not think of like an oppressive dictator. The best picture, I think, for the authority of God is the perfect and loving parent, a heavenly father. But it's from this good authority that we see a rebellion. That's the second thing I want us to see, rebellion and God's authority. Let's look at the scripture Molly read for us. As you see Genesis 3 and we begin to read, the first thing we see is that there's a liar and the first thing he says is a lie. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Crafty is an interesting word, I think, to use here. It's a word of, of contrast compared to what we've seen so far in the, in the book of Genesis, the first two chapters. We've seen God is creator, right? He's good, he's giving, he's true. And then the serpent comes on the scene. He's described as crafty, right? He's deceptive, he's destructive, he's deadly in contrast to the goodness and the truth of God. And the serpent isn't just a mere snake, right? But he's the great enemy of God. Later on, he'll go by names like the father of lies, the accuser, the destroyer, that great dragon. And the first thing out of his mouth is deception. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
See, that lie, that deception is rooted in questioning God's authority. He's twisting and perverting and distorting God's word to say something that it doesn't really. And we see the serpent distort God's authority here in four ways. And we need to look at the four ways in which God's authority is distorted because they're still being distorted that way in our lives today. Distortion number one that the serpent says is God's authority is restrictive and burdensome. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the subtle distortion here, right? The truth was God said that they could eat of every tree in the garden except one that would kill them. And the enemy here is going to distort God's words. He's going to flip reality upside down. And he makes God out to be not one who gives generously, but one who's actually holding out. He makes God out to be unreasonable and anti-joy, anti-pleasure, anti-delight. See, the lie is, hey, you're surrounded by all this good stuff, but you can't experience any of it. How unfair to you. And the sad irony is the God who's been consistently saying, it's good, I have given, is painted by this enemy as being stingy and cruel and withholding which is the exact opposite of his true and real nature. That's the first distortion. The second distortion is that God's authority doesn't really apply to you. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See, the distortion that the enemy of God saying here is that, hey, God is wrong about consequences. He didn't really mean what he said. What God said would happen really won't happen to you. You can do what God commanded you not to do, and in reality, you'll be just fine. This is the lie that God's no doesn't apply to even Adam in their situation and in their circumstances. The third distortion we see from God's enemy is that God's authority is limiting your potential. This is what the enemy says in verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the lies. God's holding out on you. He's trying to keep you small and little. He doesn't want you to experience everything that you could be. And the sad irony is that they were already like God in all the right and full and appropriate ways. They already were bearing God's image, and yet the enemy paints God as being insecure. He wants to limit and keep you down. God doesn't want you to be all you can be. For you to grow, you have to outgrow him move past him is the distortion of the enemy. And the fourth distortion we see, the enemy says the good life is found outside of submission to God's authority. So in verse six, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
So we see the, the sad moment that this, these distortion and these lies, they take root, and God's authority is believed to be a barrier to joy. The lie is swallowed, that if we're going to have a rich and full and free life, we must run from and experience that outside of God's authority. And that's the lie Adam and Eve believed, and it's a lie that rings throughout human history ever since the beginning. The lie that rebellion from God is freedom, that disobedience from God is where liberty is found. And as the story goes on, we see, as Molly read, the fallout of this rebellion from God's authority. There's this tragic irony throughout this story. They think they'll find freedom. And they actually find slavery. Slavery to the serpent, slavery to sin. And instead of having dominion over the world as they were meant to have and delegated authority, they lose the keys of, of earth in a real way to the serpent who's later described as the ruler of this world. Instead of becoming bigger and more powerful, they actually experience shrinking. Instead of experiencing more life, they taste death and dysfunction. Instead of the pleasures that God intended for them to have, enjoy every single aspect of life is fraught with dangers. Work is stained by thorns and thistles, futility. Sex is spiked with shame. Marriage is poisoned by contention. Brotherly love is marred by murder. Wine leads to addictions. And the greatest irony of all is humanity didn't actually break free from God's authority. They just chose not to receive the gracious benefits of God's joy under his authority. God's still God. They're still creatures but now they're experiencing the consequences and condemnation of, of living in opposition of enemies against his authority. A couple of things came to mind this week, and one was a, a news story I read in 2014. It happened in Brampton, Ontario, in Canada. And we've seen it play out in movies and television shows, but this is probably the most extreme example in it. The, the reality is stranger than fiction. This young man, his parents went out of town, and he thought he'd do what a lot of teenagers want to do when their parents go out of town. He's going to throw a house party. His family had just built a 5,000-square-foot home, brand new, just moved into, and so he invites a good amount of friends over, but what happens is those friends begin to post on social media and then those friends begin to post on social media and, and very soon there are 2,000 teenagers crammed into his new family home. This made international news because it took 60 police units to come break up this party and by the end of the night, over $70,000 of damage was done to the home. They actually had to take it down to the studs to rebuild it. There was such wreckage and havoc. The young man was obviously interviewed by the media with his parents weeks later, and he says, I was convinced I could handle it. I thought everything was under control. I didn't want any of this to happen. The writer, David Foster Wallace, 
he, he was speaking about a cultural moment several years ago, and, and he said, for me, the last few years of postmodern era have seemed a bit like the way you feel when you're in high school and your parents go on a trip and you throw a party and you get all your friends over and you throw this wild, disgusting, fabulous party. And for a while, it's great and you feel free and it's freeing and parental authority is gone and overthrown. A cat's away, let's play. Diocinian revel. But then time passes and the party gets louder and louder and you run out of drugs and nobody's got any more money for drugs and things get broken and spilled and their cigarette burns on your couch and you're the host and it's your house too and you gradually start to wish your parents would come back and restore some order. It's 3 a.m. The couch has several burn holes. Somebody's throwing up in the umbrella stand and you wish the revel would end. We're kind of wishing some parents would come back. And then he asked the question, is there something about authority we actually need? I think I went to like one house party in high school and it was perfectly calm. (laughs) I sat on the couch with my friend Dan and he had his Logic CD case and we just passed it back and forth and listened to music together. It was a fine time. But I know how this young man feels. And I know how, how, what David Foster Wallace is pointing to because each one of us has rebelled against God because it sounds like freedom. And then in the aftermath, we realize it wasn't freedom at all that rebelling against that authority leads to wreckage. So I think we can pause here and ask ourselves, hey, what lies and distortions about God's authority are we believing? Are we believing the lie that God's authority is restrictive and burdensome? In what ways do we believe that to obey God is to lead to a life without joy? Where have we bought into that lie? In what way are we being influenced by the distortion that God's authority doesn't really apply to our lives or our circumstances or our situation? God says this, but for me right now, now God says I'm supposed to bear the fruits of the Spirit like kindness and patience, but I'm really processing my past hurts and it's just too hard for me to be kind and patient to my spouse or my kids? In what way are we buying into the distortion that God's authority is limiting our potential when we go about leading our business or engaging in politics or stewarding our sexuality? How often do we see God as limiting to what we think we could or should be? So we cut corners and cast off that authority. Or that final distortion, what ways are we believing that the good life is found outside of submitting to God's authority? That deep down we believe that more Jesus actually leads to less joy, and we've believed that, that lie. So we can examine our hearts and name those lies we're believing. We can be honest and look at the wreckage of the aftermath of the party that we thought would be fun, but it's led to destruction and fear and loneliness. And we can ask that question, do we really need some kind of authority? And resounding from the beginning, the answer has always been yes, that we were made to live under the rule of a good God who gives good gifts and all his yeses lead to life and his no's are only no's to death. So when we find ourselves here, where do we go? 
just finally, thirdly, redemption and God's authority. The rest of the Bible is about a gracious God working because he loves us to bring us back into right relationship with him and with one another. God pursues people who are far from him to bring us back to the to safety and beauty of his authority. Not because he needs us, but because we need him and he loves us. It should strike us that there are two gardens in scripture. It begins with this garden of Eden and this first garden ended up being a place of rebellion where Adam and Eve rejected God's authority and in doing so unleashed sin and brokenness into their lives and into our world. But on the last night of Jesus' ministry on earth, he finds himself in another garden, and that garden is Gethsemane. And this is what happens according to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 26, verse 39. We see Jesus' prayer in the garden, and this is Jesus' prayer. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus is the greater Adam, that Adam represents us in our sin, that by nature and by choice, we rebel against the authority of God. But Jesus, the new perfect man, he, he perfectly submits to the Father's will. This garden is not a place of rebellion. It's a garden of obedience. Of such obedience, Jesus fully submits to the Father's authority and made his way to the cross. And on that cross, he unleashes, unlike Adam unleashing sin, Jesus unleashes grace and righteousness and obedience and forgiveness for all of us who have rebelled against the authority of God, which leads to death. See, Jesus was submitted for us. He was substituted for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's this incredible, glorious switch and exchange that Jesus takes the rebellion of, of, our, of our sin against the authority of God. He takes the wages of that sin, the punishment of the sin of our rebellion, and then he gives us, as he takes the punishment for our sin, he gives us the benefit and the blessing of his righteousness. And then he invites us back into enjoyment of the Father's good authority. He works by the power of the Spirit to, to make us women and men who grow as we're in him into people who flourish and celebrate the authority, flourish under and celebrate the authority of God. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 7, verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. What a difference that wisdom from Jesus is compared to I am the captain of my soul. That our life is not built on our own strength, our own determination, our own authority, but our life is built on the rock of the authority of God. And that's our aim as a church this spring in community groups. 
that we would go about that together, that you would be equipped to understand and embrace the life-giving authority of God, that you'll receive in-groups devotions written to, to process together, discussions, guides, led prayer, teaching videos, all to the end that together we might grasp the beauty and safety of the authority of Jesus. So just a simple application is to charge you all to take advantage of those resources that will extend to you beginning in March. That you would be, that we would all be together discipled and led into understanding the beauty and the safety of the authority of Jesus. In the early part of the 20th century, there's an author who's a Christian. Um, she had some interesting and wacky ideas about politics, but she's a beautiful writer of poetry. Her name's Dorothy Day. And she responded to Henley's manifesto, Invictus, and she wrote this poem entitled Conquered, right? Invictus was unconquered. She wrote a poem called Conquered, and it is a line-by-line takedown of William Ernest Henley. I love it. We'll end with her poem. And she wrote this. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. See, Dorothy Day knew that a soul conquered by the greatest love is a soul that is a soul that knows life. To know Christ as our captain and king means that we have life now and life forever. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you that you are a a generous God, a giving God, a God who so deeply desires that we would know life that, that you sent your only son to lay down his life so that we may be forgiven and, and live under the good and gracious and life-giving authority of our Father in heaven. So for my friends in this room who are in Christ, would you remind us of the beauty and the life that we have under your good rule. And for my friends that are distant from you, may you speak to them now, Spirit of God. May they cross the line of faith. May they recognize you as King and Savior. May they bow the knee and in doing so, receive life. Life that you, Jesus, long for them to have, long for them to have so deeply that you laid your life down for them. Because all the ways that we've run from you, Father, all the ways that we've rebelled in Christ Jesus, 
the punishment of that rebellion has been satisfied. Our sins have been forgiven, and we just need to come to you. We can come to you freely, not bringing anything, but to receive the gift of life that is alone in Christ Jesus. For each of us, help us move towards you, Jesus, this morning. We pray this in your name. God's people said, amen.